Welcome everybody to the ninth episode of the second season of Pet Talk. Today we're joined by Adam Roney. Adam is the CEO of Calls9, a technology firm based in Leeds, and he's here with us today to talk about Web3, AI, and the future of technology. I hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, nice to uh, meet you both. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. So my name is Adam Roney and I'm the founder and CEO of Calls9. Calls9 is a digital innovation and transformation agency, which means that we help businesses and organizations understand how digital and how technology can benefit them. And then through transformation, we bring ideas to life, which typically means building new digital products and services um, or improving existing ones. And we uh, have been running for uh, coming up on 12 years and we support clients around the world. And the the nature of our work um, uh, varies dramatically, but we cover the whole remit of um, innovation consultancy, digital product design, digital product development. Um, and we have quite a lot of uh, expertise in what we would call emerging technology, which is things like Web3, which covers blockchain, NFTs, the metaverse, and through to AI, generative AI, which is obviously what you're sort of seeing capture people's imagination um, at mm. the moment. Um, prior to setting up the business, I trained as a corporate commercial lawyer at an international law firm. And whilst I was at that law firm, I got the opportunity to work on technology change and innovation. And actually it was that whole process of of doing that in a corporate setting that made me realize that was really where my passion lay and ultimately was the catalyst to me setting up the business. Um, but that time as a lawyer training for it and actually doing it, I did, I did enjoy. And that whole world was, was a great experience and ultimately set, I think the business up for success going forward. So I've got that kind of professional services background as well as startup entrepreneur background as well. Yeah. So, so you mentioned, Going going into law there after uni. Do you want to talk us through from your time at, at York? It would be nice to hear a little bit about your your time here. What how PP then equipped you to go into pursuing uh, commercial law and then into uh, what, what you're doing now with Web three. Just sort of that journey. You've mentioned a bit of it there, but just to go from sort of experience at York and then into where you are now would be nice to hear. Yeah, definitely. So my maybe if I go back to. Um which feels like a very distant memory at my A-levels, and maybe talk about, I guess, how I how I ended up doing PP in the first place. So yeah. I've been um, building software and programming from a very, very young age. I started when I was eight or nine, and I went to um, a school which encouraged that a lot. So I got a lot of opportunities to, to build different technology products and different services, and I ran a couple of really small startups when I was a teenager. Um and actually, I wanted to go to university to read computer science. But um, back in the day, the only way of doing that um, was if you had very, very, very strong uh, traditional pure sort of maths capability. And for various reasons, that that wasn't something that came to me as a strength, even though I'd been building software for, by that point, nearly 12 years. So I decided instead to lean into my, I guess, more social sciences passions. Um, mm -hmm. I'd read uh, or studied politics at A-level. Um, and so uh, of the PPE, I had one of them, uh, but the philosophy and economics were completely new to me. So mm -hmm. I, I do remember uh, turning up at York and my first term 
um, doing what felt like uh, an A-level in maths in about six weeks was pretty intense. I don't know if they still do that, but <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. a pretty intense first uh, term. <laughs> um, and in fact, I was concerned that maybe the maths was, uh, you know, again, was not really my strong point, but I found a way to sort of get through that, had a great um, set of friends uh, around me. And and I found the whole course very, very collegiate and um, yeah, got through that first term and then, and then really kind of enjoyed it. And so went on through my time at York to do a lot of different things, um, a lot of which were technology um, oriented as well. So I won the Shell Technology enterprise award whilst i was at york for a piece of software i built and deployed um to a local authority um and that was um in partnership with the university's um enterprise program i won't name anybody mm-hmm. in case they're, they're not there or if their roles have changed but um i was i was supported by the university's enterprise program um, and there were opportunities to participate in innovation and and or what we now know as innovation um and I and I really relish those. The other technology projects I did at um, the university, I don't know if it's still there or not, but I um, I led on the rebuild of the student newspaper website, uh, which we got shortlisted for some awards for. Uh, that was news. News, um, yeah. Uh, and I also ended up um, becoming the president of the boat club as well, the rowing club. So I kind of York was great for me because. Um, there were so many outlets for all of these different interests and passions and activities I had. Um, mm. I should add actually maybe a little bit of a funny story. I, I originally joined um, the student newspaper as a, as a sort of journalist in the making. And I had mm. a good friend of mine who was then uh, one of the assistant editors. And I think I'd submitted my first two or three articles and she was like, I think technology might be your strong point. <laughs> so I was I was moved from journalism to um, to the tech team, which which actually was a really smart decision, and uh, as it turned out, uh, definitely was my uh, strong set of skills. Yeah, keep keep keeps all the back end stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, and it was it was good. I mean, we. Um, um, yeah, we we were shortlisted for some awards on the back of that, and kind of re- rebooted the the, the mm. sort of brand of the of the student newspaper actually, which was a lot mm. of fun. Well, it's uh it's it's still going strong now, so uh yeah. you, you you must have had some some good effect. Good. Well, if you want to a uh, real trip down memory lane, you uh, I believe my articles are still there, so you can you can <laughs> go find what I wrote about. That's interesting. Right. So then, m- moving on from your time at York, you said you went on to to train as a lawyer and then moved into web three. So how, how did you make that decision? I think it's something I've thought about actually when I'm, I'm looking at my career options and getting things sorted, that I would still consider doing a law conversion. Cause I think it is it's something that I would find fulfilling and rewarding. So how, how did you settle on that being the direction you were going from having being someone who developed software, which is perhaps quite different to practicing law? Yeah. So whilst I was at York, the, the, in all honesty, the penny hadn't quite dropped for me yet that technology was going to be my future from a paid perspective. I, I kind of still thought it was a passion and mm. I wasn't exactly sure how to turn that into a career. Um, and I do vividly remember a conversation with my parents about, you know, what do you think potential career opportunities are? And I think it was as sophisticated as my mother looking at me one day and going, well, you're very good at arguing. So why don't you think about becoming a lawyer? Um mm. And it was obviously a bit of a joke, but it started it started a kind of voyage of discovery for me. And York has got, you know, some great connections with the law firms, is very well regarded. And I was able to get in front of 
um, different firms as part of anybody going through this process will probably be very familiar with this, but um, you know, they used to be called vacation schemes and essentially ways mm-hmm. to get in front of a law firm. Uh, it's kind of work experience, but it's also kind of a reverse job interview at the same time. You know, it's an opportunity for them to evaluate mm-hmm. you and for you to see um, what you make of the firm. And I did a bunch of work um, locally and uh, across the country and in London um, with different firms to kind of get a sense of what I thought I wanted um, out of a law firm. And what was interesting, just in terms of the degree, when I was going through that process, I suspect this is different now, but when I was going through the process, there were not very many um, non-law graduates thinking of of going into law. Mm. So firms actually at the time were kind of pushing for diversity, you know, both in terms of, you know, traditional diversity, but also diversity of thought, diversity of background with respect to um you know courses and training and so you know ppe sort of stood out a bit um it's it's obvious that there are other institutions which we won't name that are also very famous for ppe so in some sense it's sort of it just captures people's attention a little bit or it certainly did back then um Mm. and i suspect it probably still does today as well because it it's a combination of disciplines and skills that are required and it's you know, all degrees can be hard, but I think there's something hard about managing those unique disciplines and weaving them together in the way that PPE requires you to do, which is different than if you've just done a law degree or you've just done, you know, an English degree or whatever it might be. Mm. So I think there's definitely interest from firms um, in diverse backgrounds. And I found that PPE put me kind of front of people's minds from that regard, which was which was brilliant. Um, and I did also find, um, I'm not sure economics tutors the world over will shudder i don't know if the economics bit of it was super relevant to the to what i was to helping me get a career in law um but undeniably the philosophy and politics elements absolutely were in terms of you know analyzing complex um uh thought processes and trying to be able to communicate them clearly and and everything else Mm -hmm. so um i think that was yeah super helpful and that led to me doing a bunch of these different vacation schemes, work placements, and getting down to a training contract offer, which in the end I actually took oh. with a firm called Eversheds uh, Sutherland, who are a huge, huge global law firm, um, mm. but also had an office locally in Leeds. And that's where I took up my training contract with them after law school. How long then were you in uh, in, in commercial law for before you then made, decided to make make the switch, you know, and, and sort of build it on that? Um, were, you know, were, was there anything that then nearly dissuaded you from taking the path that that you did into uh, into technology? So I think psychologically, I probably made the decision within the first three months of working at the firm, and that was essentially because. When I joined the firm, it was a it was a really complicated time for the industry. Um, it was the it was the height of the last financial crisis. Um, as I was walking into the firm, you know there were about seven hundred people walking out who'd just been mm. made redundant. So it was a really challenging sort of atmosphere, and the firm was committed to trying to find ways to drive additional growth, revenue, and really technology was at the heart of that. So they actually created a global innovation program and they asked for people across the business to submit ideas which could transform the firm and transform the way the firm delivered its legal services. So very quickly, 
all of my passions seem to suddenly come together in a mm-hmm. really meaningful and applied way because the firm was basically saying, hey, do you think you know how to use digital to improve what we do? Mm. So put forward an idea. Uh, it went through an internal validation process and and ended up in front of 10 of the firm's largest clients who voted on it and said, we want to bring this idea to life, which was pretty amazing. So I was a trainee. I was only about, uh, well, must have been less than six months in at this point and um, was given a six-figure budget by the firm, a team in India, and was told to go off and build a technology solution, basically, that we were going to then deliver mm. to the firm's clients. So effectively, I was running a mini software development company or a mini software development project inside this global law firm, um, which turned out to be a very fortunate thing to do because it taught me a lot about how you do that. Um, it taught me about selling solutions to businesses I would go off around the country and sort of promote it to different clients. Um, But it also taught me about the challenges of what we now call digital transformation, which is it's not just about technology. It's actually about how people feel. You know, everything affects your job. It affects your life. It affects how you feel about your work. So actually, if you're doing any type of project at scale, you need to understand Mm. all of that and you need to be live to how people feel. So it taught me kind of, I suppose what we would say are probably some of the softer skills, but which are so important to actually being able to operate in a professional services environment and certainly to be able to deliver successful technology. Mm. So that whole experience kind of panned out over the next 18 months. And the way it works in a law firm is you do a two-year training contract. And so as I got to the end of my two-year training contract, um, effectively qualifying as a solicitor, completing all of that, I had an option. And the option was, do I stay in the law firm and do I continue a traditional legal services career? Because at the time, there weren't really opportunities for people to develop innovative concepts. It just wasn't really there. It's very different today. Mm. Um, Or do I leave and try and do something um, directly in technology? And the ultimate decision was um, to leave and to try Mm. to um, forge a different path, basically. Um, and I think that um, had I not, you know, every, everything had sort of built to that point, it kind of, in the end, it does become a yes or a no decision-making process, but it wasn't it wasn't an overnight decision-making process. You know, it, it had been several mm-hmm. years in the making, if you track it back. It didn't feel necessarily obvious at the time, but I think, you know, with hindsight, you can see that that's pretty much where everything was heading. Yeah, I was going to say, you say simply just about the decision was to leave, but that, that must have felt like quite a just jumping straight in the deep end and and quite a big risk. I, I think when you put we, we see it now that you you got set up with with a company and working in, in technology more, but that must have been a must have been quite a tricky start and quite like a, a really tricky decision to make when you have that career path that seemed to be sort of set out for you in uh, practicing law that is, would probably secure you quite well into the future and taking some that there's, there's a lot less security. And was that, yeah, how difficult was that? Well, I think if you, if you knew all those risks and thought about them long enough, it would be quite difficult. Um, uh, there was probably a little bit of naivety on our part, which, which was, you know, uh, probably a healthy thing. I mean, I was aware of the concept of giving up some of the career, <clears throat> at least in the short term, because actually the firm was really good. I mean, the, the firm kept sitting me down going, do you, okay, just to be clear, 
you probably could qualify into somewhere in this business. So you absolutely telling us you do not want to uh, apply for these jobs. And I'm like, yeah, I absolutely don't. And I remember making the call to my parents and telling them, um, I don't have a job anymore. And then going, Oh, what's happened? You know? And we go, well, I've left. Uh, and there was this big pause at that point because um, I suppose it depends how long you count your journey, but if you include obviously university and the two years at law school and the two years of the training contract, you know, this has been a six year kind of plan. Um, mm. So it, I guess that then it dawned on me that it was, it was quite a big deal. Um, and we can maybe get onto this in a bit more detail in terms of things I would do differently. But at the time it just felt, um, it felt like I had no real choice. My passion was to follow technology through and find a way to apply it, to solve challenges for businesses and, and ultimately challenges for um society yeah. as well um but i also felt if i'm being honest i had a little bit of a fallback you know i did have a good degree i had qualified as a lawyer from a big old law firm so you know i i'd sort of probably mitigated in my mind anyway mitigated the risk a little mm -hmm. bit um but you're right the reality is when you head out there and you set up a business um you are then on your own and it's it's up to you to make it work so that is very different to having a job so you've called your parents and told them that you no longer have a, have a job. You're no longer have that work stream from, from the big law firm coming down to you, but giving you work to do and, and, and think things to do. What do the the days, the weeks, the months straight after you made that decision look like? So I can't really, is it quite hard to find initial direction and where you're going? And you just sort of feel you're just like, right, I'm, I'm starting a business, but how do you do that? Yeah. Well, the first, the first thing is, um, you go from having, you know, I mean, trainees don't, well, trainees get paid a lot more now than, than when I was a trainee, but, um, you know, you go from having what felt like a pretty good salary, if I'm totally honest with you, to obviously having nothing. So the first thing is you're back to making life adjustments and actually, you know, um, students, uh, are experts at making money last, you know, longer. So I kind of had to default back to some of the uh, student tactics, really, in terms of making the budget uh, last as long as possible. And then you're right. The question is, how do you find direction? And I think that the initial direction did not crystallize as quickly as we wanted it to. <laughs> and I think anybody, um, Anybody in business probably feels this because you have an idea, but then you take it out there and then you talk to people and then they'll tell you if the, good, if the idea is good or bad and they'll tell you what they need and what they don't need. Um, <clears throat> so in some sense, you then learn straight at the sharp end what it means to shape a proposition, what it really means to be in market, what people will see as valuable um, and what people don't see as valuable. And in technology, that is a forever changing thing. Um, it's not, um, you know, it doesn't stand still. So in the time we've been running the business, I mean, obviously when we set up the business, for example, there was no web three. So, mm -hmm. you know, we weren't doing web three. We, in fact, the thing we were really doing at the time was mobile because it, even though it sounds crazy now, you know, the iPhone had pretty much only just come out. And so that whole revolution of switching from desktop technology to mobile technology was happening. And so mm. we were building apps, we were building things on the iPad, we were trying to get people to use that technology. And the next big experience we had was actually moving people to the cloud. So a lot of people used to run their technology in a much more traditional way, not in the cloud. So we'd spend a lot of time moving people to the cloud. 
Then we move to say Web3. Now we're talking about generative AI. So I think the bit of the world that we occupy is helping businesses make sense of change. And because of that, we are constantly changing as well. But as long as we stay focused on that idea of taking what feels like a complicated thing, breaking it down so people can understand it, and then actually teaching them how to apply it, we've got relevance. And in some sense, I think that's what the job of a lawyer is. And I think it's what I was taught to do on my degree as well. So Mm. I think that train of thought tracks through the whole thing. Adam, nice. talking that's, that's really interesting to think about it like that as to be carry on the, the similar principle throughout yeah go on adam sorry uh no no, no worries at all uh talk, talking there of um you know all, all the different sort of uh like you know technological innovations which you know your firm has had to deal with and that you have had to deal with um you know i i, I work part-time in technology myself uh, and i have done for a few years and it's a similar sort of business model really with providing techno- uh, you know technology solutions software solutions um so i know how fast paced the industry is with you know with constant in, in, in uh, innovations um so i mean the question is it you know how have you stayed ahead of the curve uh, and made sure that call uh, calls nine has stayed ahead of the curve and uh, and remained competitive so this is the this is the forever challenge, right? Um, <laughs> I think that there are kind of probably two parts to this, and at times we've we've at times we've not always got it right, and then maybe there's a lesson in here. You can be too far ahead of the curve mm-hmm. if you're not careful. So in at the start of the business, um, the iPhone had come out. And then the iPad came out pretty pretty quickly thereafter. And so we built a digital publishing platform, which enabled magazine publishers to publish things to the iPad. And we were walking around showing this thing to people because we were like, this is the future of publishing. And you know, the number one question we got was, what is an iPad? <laughs> you know, it, it was too early in the cycle yeah. uh, and people just did not understand it. So in some sense you've got to kind of call it at the right point in time. You know, you're, you've got to be able to communicate value. People have got to be able to understand it and um, they've got to be able to connect with it. Mm. Now, Web3 is kind of an interesting one as well because yeah. it felt like last year was going to be the tipping point of it coming over into the mainstream, uh, by which I mean... Uh, the same people that now understand what an iPad is understand what web three is. And it mm-hmm. didn't quite happen. You know, it no. was a very complicated year. You know, we had, there were all these scandals that happened. There were all these financial collapses that happened. Yeah. Compare that with generative AI mm-hmm. where people almost instantaneously seem to understand it. They open up chat GPT in a web browser and you, you know, you're talking to it and it seems so intuitive. So, this is a long way of answering your question, but I think the my advice to anybody thinking about this is you need to have a vision for the future, but you've got to be able to try to make it land for the present mm. as well. And I think the skill is trying to find the right balance between those two things um, and accepting in technology, at least, that there are things outside of your control that can suddenly change the direction of it. Had we not had FTX in November, December, 
mm-hmm. maybe people wouldn't have diverted their attention away and maybe we'd have kept going. Maybe if we hadn't have had Silicon Valley Bank in you know January, February time, startups yeah. would have felt more confident. So you you, you operate in an ecosystem as a business. You, you, you There are only so many things you can control. And mm-hmm. so for me, the kind of gold standard is um, we need to be thought leaders on lots of different types of technology from a direction perspective in terms of the things we actually build and implement we have to be led by the market we have to see where the market is at we have to see where people's minds are at because that's our interface to the world now of course that's because we're a service-based business right so we're helping people bring this stuff to life where that message changes slightly is if you're a startup and if you're building technology and you're trying to build the market then you do have to be at the front of the pack Mm. And we do work with businesses that do that as well. Um, but even they can get it wrong, you know, too yeah. too far too far ahead of the curve and your idea is meaningless and obviously too far behind and you've lost the competitive edge. So it's a mm. really it's a really subtle balancing act. And in technology, it can change super quickly, is my experience. Yeah. I mean, it sounds though that you're not only ahead of the curve, but you're ahead of all the questions that I'm going to ask you. I mean, you, you touched on the... Uh, uh, on on the collapse of FTX, uh, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank early this year, uh, later last year we had you know a sort of bursting of the of, of the NFT bubble, uh, uh, the collapse of Luna. There are all of these different external shocks. Um, so how specifically has Cause Nine reacted to these external shocks, uh, and and how do you think that um, you know Web three markets will will sort of weather these storms? Yeah, well, do you know maybe just to make a connection back to the to the degree as well. I think where the economics component comes in, um, and again, this is probably an oversimplification, is not just the application of it to economic um, subject matter, but the idea Mm. that you can think systematically about cause and effect, essentially. Mm. Um, So I think seeing, you know, being able to look at a series of seemingly unconnected events, join the dots and try to extrapolate out, I think in business is super important. Um, so my belief on web three is actually quite bullish. Yeah. The technology is very sound and the yes. applications for it are real. And strangely, um, even though it looks nonlinear, the sudden growth in generative AI might actually be the catalyst that web three needs to yeah. come out and really show its full colors. Because if we remove the crypto element from web three for a second, you know, Web3 is really about trust and identity. Mm-hmm. You know, do I know that something has happened and do I know who has done it and who is this person? In a world of generative AI, you know, in 12 months time, I probably don't even need to attend this podcast. I can send my avatar uh, mm-hmm. and it will be photorealistic and it will sound like me and it will know everything I know. Well, that's kind of cool, but it's also kind of worrying. So how are we going to demonstrate true identity in a world where everything is photorealistic and everything can be faked Mm. web three i think is going to be the way we're going to do that because we're basically going to tokenize our identity Mm -hmm. we're going to store it on the blockchain so that we know it can't be tampered with we know it's that person we can see the whole chain of events leading up to the creation of that identity and therefore we've got confidence that the email we receive from them is that person the video call we've just had with them is that person so I kind of think, and you can only do that in a decentralized 
ways you know so i sort of feel like maybe the story arc of web3 is going to be that it was essentially an infrastructure technology you know it's plumbing really yeah and the question is what does that plumbing let you do and i think that yes there's a whole piece around trade and commerce and digital ownership and i think that's super super important and i can talk about that as well but i actually think digital identity might turn out to be the more important of the two hmm but I think that it's very interesting stuff. I mean, I, I, as I said, I work in I work in in, in these markets. So it's it's interesting to hear, uh, you know, to hear your opinions and 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 how how that you know uh, you know impacts the work work that I do as well. Um, so as you're talking there about uh, about a, uh, about AI uh, and you know this vision of in twelve months time, um, do you think those sorts of um, that, you know, those sorts of innovations will completely change the way that we work. Yeah, I think if you first principles it for a second, they're not a million miles away from something that we already do. So mm. when you send an email, um, you're sending a snapshot of you. It's a snapshot mm. of your thoughts, your responses. It's a, it's and it and it goes off and it lives without you. And that's yeah. the power of it, isn't it? It can it can sit there, it can be interpreted, it can drive actions, it can drive behavior. Now it came from you, okay? But it's not sitting with you. So it's a digital representation of it. I think, I know it's a much more advanced set of technology, but it seems plausible for me to be able to deploy an avatar that, that, that has parameters that I set to yeah. do things around subject matter, which I feel comfortable with in a similar way to the way I'm doing when I send an email, right? It's, it, I, I think that that, I think it's logical and probably a necessary extension of where we're heading as a society. I, and I don't think it's that far away really. Yeah. Um, we actually, so I still, I'm involved with the legal sector quite a lot from a, from a technology perspective. And I was a keynote speaker at the recent legal tech in Leeds um conference and one of the things that we demonstrated on the day um is a proof of concept artificial intelligence agent that was able to support a non-english speaking um family gain access to welfare services um and we did that uh using ai and using something called an ai agent so it was basically a thing that was able to go off and act as this person research information find answers to questions draft emails and send emails on her behalf um and she doesn't speak english so she can't do any of that without that intermediary technology being in place i think that's amazing if we're able to roll out that sort of technology you're mm -hmm. potentially transforming the lives of millions of people um so i do i mean you're not a million miles away from it right now i definitely think within 12 months time yeah. you'll be a lot closer to it and you'll and it will feel much more professional and much more sophisticated as well yeah i, I think adding to that like i think it's very easy to be skeptical easy to be skeptical of ai and sort of think oh it, it's going to completely change the job landscape me and adam people looking to go into professional services like are we going to have a job in how many years time but i don't think mm -hmm. when i talk to people like that like family members who perhaps don't maybe understand it and think about the, the gravitas of of ai it potentially does have the capacity to completely change our day-to-day -day lives and a large capacity of, of society may not have to work have we uh, how we are now maybe 
break from the sort of it might be more absurd to be working nine to five than to not be and do you think it really do, does have that that true capacity to completely change the landscape not just of of, of work but of life fundamentally yeah absolutely fundamentally i mean i'll give you um just a real quick example you know when i was learning to program as an eight-year-old i had to go to the library in my town which didn't have the book i needed and I would request it from the British Library and it would be sent and I would photocopy the 5% of it you were allowed to photocopy or whatever it was, have it for a week and then it would go back again. I can now open ChatGPT and ask it to program in natural language in virtually any programming language in the world and it will create credible software. <laughs> I mean, that's that we're as digital natives you're going to understand that more you're i think part of mm. what your job is going to be is actually translating that back out to other people so that they understand you know your parents might not understand that in the same way that i've just described it but that's the fundamental difference is that you have not just only instantaneous access to knowledge which is what the internet gave us but actually instantaneous access to knowledge and capability fused together in a way that we've never had before so i do think it's fundamentally different um and i but i also think that for people at your stage in your careers i think you're probably at the right exciting side of it you know people who were 10 years into a career right now are a little nervous because maybe they didn't have to be technological before but now they absolutely do have to be technological your mm. your whole history is probably quite different you I suspect most of you are probably quite technological anyway, and you can see the direction of travel. So I actually think, I do think overall it can be optimistic because it's for us to control where the technology goes and it's for us to influence it and, and to, and to make it positive, you know, um, mm. the internet can obviously be a negative place, but it can also be a hugely positive place. It's down to the people that use it. And I think the position, you know, you guys are in and your, your cohort, I think it's very exciting to shape it. Well, Adam, thank you very much for joining us. I'm very conscious of time. I think we've only got less than a minute left on this uh, on this Zoom call, as we are students and we don't have the money to uh, pay for Zoom Premium. Uh, but uh, thank you very much for joining us, uh, and I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you. Yeah, it was an amazing insight, Adam. Thank you for taking the time. Cheers. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. Take care. Take thank care. you. Bye-bye. Yeah.